Welcome back to the British Society of Criminology's Hate Crime Network podcast with your hosts, Dr. Rachel Keithley and Dr. Irene Zempi. Today's guests are Professor Michael Rowe and Dr. Ruth Lewis, who together with Dr. Claire Wiper won our article paper prize in 2019 for their paper, Misogyny Online, Extending the Boundaries of Hate Crime. Okay, so first, can you please provide us with a brief overview of the paper? So in terms of what you examined, your topic, your research aims and the methods as well, please. Yeah, sure. So the research was about online abuse of women and particularly of feminists. So we were responding to the growing awareness at that time of um, online abuse directed at women generally, but also specifically at feminists. Um, And we wanted to do a victimological approach to this. We wanted to understand what are victims' experiences, how do they interpret it, what impacts does it have. Um, And so we did a survey followed by interviews with a sample of, sorry, the analysis is of data only from women. I think we had um, fewer than five um, men and people who identified differently. Um, So we ended up focusing on on the women's accounts. So the survey Uh, I think we got something like 230 responses, I think it was. And then we did also did 17 interviews. We were really amazed at the kind of volume of the qualitative comments that we got on the survey. So the survey asked people about their experiences. And we did things like we asked about their general experiences of online abuse, but also the most recent and we, we did this to sort of try to balance out so that we weren't just hearing about the worst cases, that we got we would get a wider spread. And, that, and that's an approach that's taken quite often in research around violence against women to look at in general and then the most recent to get that kind of spread. So we asked people uh, to tell us about those experiences, um, the nature of them, if they knew um, who the perpetrators were. Um, what impacts there were, what they did in response. So it was a kind of victimological um, study. And and like I say, we we used both closed questions, but also open questions. And we got really fantastic qualitative data, so much so that we thought the the interviews were less necessary. We had originally intended to to conduct a larger number of interviews, but because we got this really rich qualitative data, um, we 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 did 17 um, and we the sample group as far as we can tell was pretty representative at that time of people in the UK who were engaging in feminist debate so we were really careful to try to send it around to networks that would uh, reflect the spread of feminist politics you know not just liberal feminists or radical feminists or feminists interested in sex work or feminists working in the law or anything like that, but to really get as wide a spread as possible. And I, I think, you know, judging from the comments that we got, then that that is what we achieved. So, yeah, overall, the study was looking at the experiences of feminists who engage in feminism online, their experiences of abuse. That's wonderful. Thank you. How would you define online misogynistic abuse? And is it different or similar to offline misogynistic abuse? It's it's a difficult one in some ways to define, isn't it? You know, misogyny, I think it's from the Greek um, word referring to hatred. And I know we'll be talking about 
hate and hatred. But I think misogyny is also taken to mean not just hatred, but also disdain for, contempt for, prejudice towards women. Um, so it's not only a, a, about hate. And as I say, we'll, we'll come on to talk about hate and whether it's a useful term to use for the kinds of abuses that, that we were gathering information on. There are, of course, lots of similarities between online and offline abuse, but there are some sort of important differences as well. Um, one of them is around volume. In general, as we go about our lives and encounter misogyny, that is most likely to be from individuals, maybe small groups of men and boys. But of course, online, you can be subjected to abuse um, from thousands of people within minutes. So the volume, the absolute avalanche um, can make it really quite a distinct experience, I think. And that's something that, some, you know, certainly not all of our respondents had had that kind of experience. It was the minority who'd had experiences of, you know, very high volume abuse. But th there must be something qualitatively different to experiencing that abuse, like I say, within seconds or, or minutes from thousands of people from accounts around the world. So the, the the volume of messages and the volume of perpetrators, I think, can make it a different experience. You know, the roots are, are likely the same online and offline, but the experience might be different. I think, too, that misogyny online, of course, can include and does include threats of violence, threats of sexual violence, threats of murder and so on. And not just threats, but actual violence as well. But there does seem to be a trend in online abuse of certain words and phrases. Um, and rape threats, of course, are inc incredibly common. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed is a lot of threats of sexual violence to the mouth. You know, and we'll come on to talk about how online abuse can be a silencing, um, serve a silencing function. So the, the kind of readiness with which people perpetrate abuse, which is filled with threats of sexual violence, sometimes very graphic sexual violence. You know, rape is not the only term used, but kind of you, you kind of get the sense that it's almost fantasies that are being expressed as, as threats. So there, there might be something different about the, the speed at which abuse turns or the speed at which communication turns abusive and becomes filled with sexual um, violence as well. And then, I, I mean, you add anything, Mike, that you like, but the, the last thing I was just going to mention, which I think we might come on to talk about again, is this this blurring between in, um, online and offline, so that there aren't kind of neat boundaries between the two, but maybe we can pick that up later. I think we, um, going back, well, I think going back to the point about misogyny, we didn't particularly define it for our respondents if you like we, we we sort of let them interpret that how they saw fit um so we could sort of ducked out of a definition in that sense the online offline dichotomy i think is a really important one because we found examples lots of examples about i think a, a significant minority of our respondents said that they they thought that they knew who the perpetrator was of the abuse they were receiving. So this wasn't, although Ruth's absolutely right to point to thousands of messages being sent from, you know, all corners of the globe sort of thing, there was also a very significant 
theme, which is that people did actually know very often, or they thought they did, who the perpetrator was. And they could talk about that in a very convincing way. They knew who the perpetrator was because, or they thought they did, because the perpetrator would talk about information that really only they would know about in terms of, for example, their location, where they worked, um, which tube station they got off at, their route home. You know, they could, um, in the threats, they could convey information like that, which clearly related to the online, uh, the offline world and the real world, and um, obviously made the threats even more more, um, chilling in many cases. So it was absolutely not the case that this was a, I don't know if people still say this as much. It felt in when we did the work, it felt as though it was still often argued that this was something a bit sort of abstract. It was online. All that the, all the victim really needs to do is turn off the computer and it doesn't really matter. Um, I don't know if people make those arguments as much. I mean, we're recording this at a time when the online abuse bill is going through Parliament and it feels like we've made a bit of progress since then since we did the work in terms of taking this kind of stuff seriously i think it maybe maybe that i don't know maybe i sound very naive and optimistic saying that we've made some progress but at the time it seemed like it was an argument that really needed to be made that this was actually something that needed to be taken seriously and in in its own right it wasn't something divorced from reality i think that's a really useful point about um how how knowledge changes or how we frame issues changes because that that's just four years ago I mean I guess we were doing the research you know um, a year or so before before this publication but you know we're talking five six years ago that exactly as as you say Mike we had to make the case violence against women online and offline is part of the same phenomenon and one isn't any less or serious or or less significant than the other but I think you're dead right, Mike, that we that we don't really need to make that point any longer. Unfortunately, I think that's probably partly because online abuse is so much more part of most people's lives. Can I say that? Is it most people's lives? Most people would have an awareness of it, even if they haven't experienced it. So it, it is more commonly recognised and known about now, I think. So I think I think perhaps the prevalence of it but also the work that's been done um, by scholars, but also by practitioners and activists kind of um, makes clear the connections between the online and the offline worlds. Yeah, thank you. I think you capture really well those those complexities, but also the nuances of online misogynistic abuse and their relationship to the offline world and how labelling misogyny and labelling hate can actually sometimes be prohibitive to capturing all these experiences. But you also point out in the paper that online misogynistic abuse poses some serious challenges. So in terms of victim support, policy and criminal justice responses. So could you just give us an outline or an overview of what some of these challenges were that you found? Well, I mean, there are some very clear challenges in terms of, first of all, um, investigations. These are, as we know, I think, very difficult um, just from a kind of forensic point of view. They're they're cross-jurisdictional extremely so they're very complicated in terms of the volume of uh, messages that might be sent and all of that kind of thing so you know there's that there's that basic problem of trying to conduct any kind of um, investigation into online um, offending of any kind is is very apparent here I think in terms of um, I think there's also a problem in terms of kind of capturing the content and the 
nature of the um, the types of abuse that are expressed and where the harm lies and what the damage is. So I'm thinking now about the um, the nature of um, silencing. Ruth's already sort of referred to the idea that this is very often about shutting women out of debate and cutting down the the, the kind of um, digital commons and saying that women have, you know, um, engaging in feminist debate and so on are not entitled or are not a legitimate presence. That kind of exclusionary content is 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 kind of difficult, I think, probably for investigators to understand in some respects. I think another part of this in, is is to recognise um, the, the nature of the the interests of victims. It was something we've talked a lot about when we were doing the research and doing the analysis was how we kind of came to terms with the fact that quite a significant proportion of women who we we heard from spoke not not dismissively um, about their experiences. It wasn't that they were dismissing them as unimportant, the kind of things that they were being told, but it was kind of that they but they were saying that the abuse they received somehow sort of led them to be sort of almost empowered and recommitted to the causes that they, they were they were speaking about and to sort of double down their commitment to their political project if if you can put it that way you know they would i think very often reject the label of being a victim you know there's that wider debate about victims and survivors and the terminology that we use is very significant here obviously and that came through um elements of that came through i think in our in our findings as well so from a victim's point of view um if you're a if you're a service provider or if you're in the criminal justice system somehow i think one of the things i would say is not to not to assume that you can um, not to assume a sort of singular response, not to assume that victims are going to be horrified and hiding away as a result of what they've experienced, um, because that, that very often that was not the case. And that didn't seem to bear any relationship to the nature of the abuse. Some of the most graphic and horrible things were not um, not necessarily rated as particularly severe in terms of their impact on the victim. Maybe the the volume point is a slightly contradictory one as well, I think, and a complex one in as much as, as Ruth has said, I think the volume of um, messages often adds to the nature of the victimisation. But also for some of the participants, they would kind of say, well, you know, I get this kind of abuse all the time and I just, you know, I, I don't. I don't really deal. I don't feel like I can deal with it. Why should I? It's not for me to deal with. It's their problem. And, you know, and they had they had a very sort of resilient and uh, you know, a, a different kind of response to what you may imagine at the outset that you would read. If you just read the material, you'd think that this person would be, in, you know, completely bowled over by what had happened to them. But actually, that often wasn't the case, I think. So the complexity of their experiences needs to be really acknowledged and understood. Excellent. Uh, moving forward, the data presented in the paper show that there are similarities between online misogynistic abuse and the key characteristics of hate crime. Specifically, you identify three dimensions of hate crime. The nature of the motivation, 
exclusionary intent and spatial context. Can you please describe these dimensions in more detail? Okay, shall I start off by talking about um, the point about motivation? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we say in the paper and that we were aware of all the way through is that we can only interpret what motivations might be. We, unless you talk with the perpetrators, you, you cannot know what, what the motivations are. So you're reading motivation off the text very often, which um, you know means that you've got quite a, a weak basis on which to kind of claim that something is hateful or, or um, you know, some other behaviour. And I'm, I'm kind of aware that one of the first um, successful prosecutions of online abuse which I believe was the abuse um, directed at uh, Caroline Criado Perez. One of the perpetrators was a woman. And of course, women can express misogyny as well. Um, so that throws in a, another layer of complexity, but is, is hatred towards women exactly what she was expressing there? Or were, were there some other more complex nuances there? What we talk about in the paper is um, the nature of hate and some of the, the difficulties with claiming that or interpreting the the behaviors as being hatred because for example what some of the respondents said was that they noticed that a a man who expressed vile misogynistic attitudes and threats perhaps towards one woman when you looked at his profile picture it would be a picture of him holding his baby girl and with his arm around his wife so clearly he doesn't purport to or seem to hate all women, but there are, it is it is women presumably who step out of the kind of patriarchal heteronormative expectations that become targeted, and that that's partly why we we studied hate towards feminists because feminists, of course, are seen as as people who do um, step out of those uh, patriarchal norms. So you know, this makes online misogyny a slightly uncomfortable term to use. For some of what we're talking about, because when you know they're, they're not expressing hatred towards all women, but towards some women. Another reason why it, it's a slightly difficult term is if you take an intersectional approach, you know, and many of our respondents did talk about this, about how the abuse was both homophobic and sexist or racist and sexist. And, you know, how do we then define it? How do we then describe it? Is it is it equally hatred towards somebody's perceived race or ethnicity and their perceived sex? Or, you know, how do the two support each other? So there's there's a, a kind of need there for, um, you know, a, a kind of more intersectional understanding as well. Overall, you know, our concerns with using the term hate or, or assuming that the motivation is hate is that hate doesn't always express the, the, the complexities of feelings of both the perpetrator and of the victim. You know, as, as Mike has just said, you know, some women, when they receive very common, very frequent abuse, they wouldn't experience it as hate, but as more, more as an irritation. And now, obviously, that, that, that is a coping strategy. That's a way of, you know, normalising it to, to make it more bearable to live with. So it is a strategy, but they might not have expressed what they received as hate in every instance well just briefly and to add on to that because what we sort of we we've talked about this around and around and around for what seemed like years i suppose whether or not hate crime or not hate crime 
And many of the uncertainties that we had, actually, we sort of, in the end, we figured actually applied to other discussions about hate crime anyway. That issue about the intention of the perpetrator, for example, is played out very much, I think, in terms of discussions of hate crime directed at disabled people by their carers and their 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 associates and so on. So, you know, the, the blurred boundaries and the difficulties of ascribing a word like hate, we all know is maybe part of the reason why in the US they talk about bias crimes rather than hate crimes and, you know, all of that discussion. So it's a broader discussion about hate than and we felt that this this also our particular focus also needed that kind of nuanced understanding. Anyway, in terms of exclusionary intent, I mean I've already mentioned the idea that the the particular objection that seemed to be expressed by perpetrators was to do with women um, participating in debate online. That spatial exclusion, uh, which we think about in real world terms, often with discussions about racism and the exclusion of particular groups from particular neighbourhoods, for example, you know, that, that a particular locality might be seen as being not, not somewhere where minority groups have any legitimate right to exist or whatever also played out here but in this this was obviously in a digital environment um it wasn't appropriate for women to be involved in some of the discussions and they were being excluded there so i guess if we if we think about the uh, increasing transition of you know human engagement and social discourse and so on if if that trans um if that's becoming increasingly something that's digitally based then those kinds of exclusionary practices need to be rethought to be um, to be spatial in that in environment as well as in the physical world too. But I, I think there's something more to be said about the exclusionary content, if we can go back to that. So the exclusionary content that we were um, focusing on was particularly, uh, as Mike said, about the desire to silence women. I've been reading some work by Sia Pera, I think is how you say her name, and she, she draws um, a comparison between the online abuse directed at women and feminists just now with the witch hunt of the 16th and 17th century at a time of of economic and social transition it was a way of excluding women from or, or rather enforcing conformity on women and in the same way she argues that um, online abuse is used now to limit women's access to the resources of the kind of the techno capitalism, you know, the, the era that we're moving into of advanced techno um, capitalism. And so it, it seems, you know, many women, many people experience online abuse as, as a way of an attempt to silence them. And like I said, you know, it was not uncommon for uh, respondents to report that the abuse consisted of threats of of sexual violence to a woman's mouth, you know, that there was a lot of, um, in various ways, sh just shut up being the most mild, various ways of trying to silence women. So I think, you know, there's something very distinctive about this exclusionary intent, you know, and you could see the same sort of thing in terms of um, sexual harassment in the workplace. You know, certainly when women started to enter the workplace in larger numbers, then sexual harassment was, you know, a, a, a 
key feature of their lives and you could easily interpret that as a message to women that they didn't belong in those environments and if they were going to uh, encroach on men's territory then they needed to conform to what men expected of them. Yeah so I think that that we don't know if if um, perpetrators are attempting to silence women we can interpret that they are and, and many women experience it as an attempt to silence them although as as Mike said in fact it, it was often a, a galvanizing experience for for women and I think it's worth saying something here about the activism the thing that that can make online and offline experiences quite different is that at the same time that you're experiencing the the abuse online particularly if you're kind of well networked with other feminists you can also be experiencing support from feminists and activism from feminists against the perpetrators so some groups talked about how they were in networks where they would actually be given different roles if they saw somebody being targeted for abuse somebody would go kind of backstage and find out more about him find out who he worked for and if his work if his employer knew that he was sending these messages on work time for example someone else would would support the victim and to let her know that she wasn't alone someone else might target their activity at the perpetrators themselves so so you know it's this quite extraordinary really multi-level experience where you're experiencing abuse but also a sense potentially of solidarity from others um, and a sense that the, the politics that you are being abused for are, are highly relevant and and uh, valuable. Thank you I think there's some really rich and, and detailed findings there and speaking of the findings the analysis outlined in this paper they've obviously got considerable implications for the criminal justice system for law and for health and social policy so um, could you briefly outline some of those implications i suppose the main the main uh, the main implication is 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 the obvious one really which is that this is a very significant area in terms of the amount of uh, offending that's that's occurring um that it does link as we said into real world offending as well um you know there's a very wide discussion about the extent to which online activity reflects people's real world activities as, but but i think we found, we've certainly found enough evidence to suggest that some of the at least some of the perpetrators of this kind of offensive abuse would be um would be a, a people of concern if you like in terms of real world activity as well so i think there's the volume the seriousness but as I say, I also think in terms of the policy response, the victim support, the health and social care responses, that we have to also understand that the victims using inverted commas around that word have um, considerable autonomy. And as Ruth has just described, would would often talk about their um, their response um, to what they um, experienced as being quite an important part of their own uh, feminist activism. Now, of course, there's a much bigger question as well about the extent to which all of that would translate to, I suppose, what we might describe as non-activist women who receive abuse in online spaces, of which there must be an enormous number who are not networked, who are not well positioned, so, you know, that would be something of, of further concern, which I think we, we need to know more about their experiences and, and what that looks like and what needs to be done in that space. 
We've not really mentioned in our discussion now the role of the tech companies in all of this, but I think that is also significant. Um, and we got quite, Ruth can perhaps remind me about this as well, but I I think we got quite mixed responses from, I think there was a general perception, which was that the authorities in broad terms were not taking the issue seriously enough. And that was um, something which was applied to the police as well as to social media companies who were not um, who were not doing enough to address these kinds of problems. And, you know, goodness me, looking back a couple of years ago, as Ruth said, maybe five years ago when we were doing this work, it's quite shocking to think that that's still there's still such a concern now that we've still got these kinds of challenges in front of us. But uh, but clearly pretty apparent, I think, from our study, which is that the the social media companies are not applying their own rules effectively at all. Um, we might talk about whether those are the most appropriate rules, whether those rules are the ones that we would want to, you know, write now, whether they need to be refined and improved or strengthened. But even the ones that they had set themselves, they weren't really enforcing. Um, so I think that's a significant concern. Um, one of the other findings was that the, the a platform where women experience the most abuse was Twitter. And obviously the changes at Twitter recently suggest that there's likely to be less um, policing with a small p of uh, abuse on that platform. Okay, so um, finally, uh, what further research have you undertaken or do you feel needs to be done to address this issue? I'll, I'll, I'll go first then. I, I've um, done some other work about online abuse, not directly about um, hate crime, but uh, I've just published a book with uh, Matthew Hall and Jeff Hearn on digital gender sexual violations, where we look at a range of different sorts of digital violations, including upskirting, which I've looked at a bit with also with um, Sundaria Nitha. So upskirting, um, so-called deep fake so-called revenge porn, other forms of image-based violence and abuse. So so we've, we've just um, published that. But in terms of other research that I think needs to be, to be done, and actually I'm, I'm really um, fascinated to see that a lot of my undergraduate students are wanting to focus on this in their dissertations, and that that is focusing on the, the perpetrators of online abuse and, and how they are enacting masculinity, how they're responding to some of the most misogynistic posts, how they're um, engaging with, usually unfortunately engaging with these these posters and these sentiments. So I think that there's, there's, there's scope for more research about perpetration and perpetrators. Although having done some work years ago, earlier in my career, which involved interviews with with men about perpetration of domestic abuse. You don't always get the richest <laughs> and most interesting and useful accounts from perpetrators of abuse of their own behaviour. So I think it, that that always has to be, you know, one of the many accounts that that we look at, rather than looking only at perpetrators' accounts. But I th I think I think we need to understand more about what abuse means for the people who do the abusing. What, what role it plays in their lives and what their motivations are, what what purpose they think it serves, those kinds of things. And I think that we need more intersectional research, which looks at not misogyny on its own, but, you know, at, at how, the, how the different systems of oppression are 
upheld through online abuse. So how you know racist abuse cuts cuts across uh, misogynistic abuse and you know homophobia and disabled abuse and so on. I think all those would be great areas to explore. What about you, Mike? What have you been doing or would like to do on this topic? Uh, well, mainly thinking about violence against women and girls in the nighttime economy at the moment and a project I'm doing, um, which is exploring those themes um, and thinking about perpetrators, not not only from the point of view of trying to understand more about people who are really committed perpetrators in this space, but also thinking about the mechanisms by which men mostly it would be men and boys who commit crimes against women and girls in the context of the nighttime economy do it in a particular context where they're with other men and boys they're out for social occasions they are perhaps drinking or taking illegal substances of one kind or another but as I keep saying to colleagues, you know, the kind of perpetrators who probably don't go out at the beginning of the evening with the expressed intention of groping a woman or committing a, an offence against a woman of some kind, um, but nonetheless end up doing so in, the, in, a, in a context of substance abuse, in a context of commercialised and sexualised nighttime economy and how those things un, unpack and how they unfold and what we can do to better intervene and recognize the symptoms and the signs that they might be problematic behavior that's occurring or going to occur. So I think we can do more, more about perpetrators in terms, as Ruth is suggesting, I think about individuals who are known perpetrators, known offenders, but I also think we need to think about perpetration in broader terms and get understanding the context in which it occurs. It's not just about dysfunctional men although they are dysfunctional men but it's not you know the point is it's not just about men who are committed organized perpetrators you know we have a wider discussion mm. about all of these things and I think that's the sort of thing that we need to bring to bear in this space as well and I think that that really applies to the online world too you know on the one hand you've yeah. got your incels and your men's rights activists but but what about the, the men and boys who who are kind of swept along Exactly. influenced by it not not deeply committed not organized like you say but but how is this shifting to become a more a wider more widely supported norm i think that there's some really important questions there so i've been doing some interviews recently on another project actually with detectives who look at adult sexual assault and one of the things they're talking about is the way in which perpetrators are using certain violent and um, abusive techniques, strangulation in particular. And the detectives are talking about the fact that this seems to be something that they're picking up from pornography online, that this is somehow what people do in the context of a consensual sexual relationship. And actually, of course, that's extremely problematic, but they're not doing it because they kind of are misogynistic women haters. They're doing it because they think that's the kind of behavior that is expected of them and I think you know it's very it's a very difficult territory to tread but I think we have to we have to recognize that those are not the same as kind of serial rapists that we might have talked we might talk about in other contexts 
I'm sure there might be some overlaps, but they're not the same sort of perpetrators, I don't think. I think we need to understand that a bit more carefully and in a bit more nuanced way, which is not about making any, any excuses for anything at all. Um, it's about, but it might provide a way of providing better education and interventions potentially in the longer term. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, so much food for thought. Thank you so much for your time and fantastic insight into the paper, online misogyny, overlap with hate crime. You're very it's welcome. It's been lovely. It's been lovely to talk about it again because we wrote it some years ago, didn't we, Mike? So yeah, it's absolutely. been nice to dip back into it. Nice to think about it again. And we also really need to acknowledge that Claire Wiper, our colleague, was involved in She's not been involved today, unfortunately, but she's been um, obviously completely involved in every other part of it. Uh, tip, tip of the hat to Claire. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.